Well, good morning, church. Thank you, thank you. Kind of knocked off rhythm there a little bit because I normally walk up saying good morning and everybody says good morning back. So, well, good morning. Uh, Welcome to um, everyone that's here visiting uh, and also uh, those of you that are part of our church family. It's good to see you. I'm super excited because I get to dunk my boy in this baptistry today. Um, This is my fourth, uh, my youngest, uh, Judah. So we'll be doing that uh, towards the end of the service. Um, welcome those joining us on the live stream, Mimi and Grandpa, that's my parents, uh, my mom, our dad and stepmother are joining us from the live stream, so good to have you guys. And um, did you know that today in the church calendar is Christ the King Sunday? Nice of them to think of us, give us our own day in the church calendar, appreciate that. And as Ben said, we're starting the Gospel of Luke today, and we're going to be in this Gospel for the next 17 years. Um, so you're maybe not that long, uh, but at least it'll be a year, but we're going to take a break. So we'll, we'll, we'll piece it out a little bit. So we'll go through Advent and then we'll take a break for a couple of months to do some other things. And then we'll get back into Luke and we'll, we'll, we'll spread it out. But, it, uh, but it's a, it's a, the biggest book we've ever, we've ever tackled before. And so it's a behemoth, but it is a delightful, glorious book. We're excited about that. And today, to start out this series, we're going to talk about the Bible. Um, because Luke's introduction, I'm going to, now this is a long intro for this sermon. Luke's introduction gives us insight into the Bible as a whole. So Luke's gospel, his account begins with an explanation of his purpose in writing, his writing priorities, his writing style, his research methodology. And these things give us a glimpse into the importance of Scripture in the Christian tradition. So Christians, we are people of the book. That is who we are. We believe the word of God. The highest authority for Christian life and for doctrine is not church leaders, but the word of God. It is the holy scriptures, the Bible. That is our highest authority. Whenever I first started studying theology, um, some of you all may not know this book, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. Eric Tuffensham teaches a class on it. You know, it's a book that uh, small children couldn't carry. I mean, it's a, it's a big, thick book. Um, so I first started studying theology and, um, you know, was reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And I would expect, like, a, a theological book of that sort, you're learning everything, pretty much this big survey of all Christian theology. And what you would expect is for theology to start with the doctrine of God, right? I mean, you would expect to learn about God first. And interestingly, um, Grudem's Systematic Theology, whenever I first got the book and I looked at the table of contents, the first section is the doctrine of the Word of God. It's the doctrine of Scripture. And that, uh, at first that, that was surprising to me, uh, but then as, you know, once I started to absorb the material more, it made sense why. And the reason why is that we cannot know God apart from the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. So we have to know what's our authority for knowing who God is before we can really begin to understand who God is. And so whatever we know about God is made known to us by God because he has chosen to reveal himself in a particular way. And the way that God has revealed himself supremely is in Jesus Christ, but the word of God is the written witness of Jesus Christ. So the way God has revealed himself to us is through his word. And so if you go back even at the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it's this brilliant introduction because in the first three verses, you see God exists, God speaks, 
God creates, right? You see this, this God is revealing himself, but he is a God who, how does he create? He creates by speaking because all of creation is a self-disclosure. God is making himself known. You know, if you go through uh, the Old Testament, if you, uh, like the, the center of religious life in the Old Testament times was the temple. The center of religious life was the temple. And then in the center of the temple was this thing called the most holy place where God's presence dwelt or the holy of holies. So here in this holy of holies, inside that, there was something uh, in the middle of that, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And then if you were to open the Ark of the Covenant, don't do this, by the way, if you ever run into the Ark of the Covenant. If you haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know why. But, uh, but if you open the Ark of the Covenant, what is contained within is the Ten Commandments, the Word of God. And so at the center of the center of the center of the, re- of the religion, of, of the worship of God's people, you see the instruction of God, the Word of God, the Ten Commandments, the law. And then later on, as their religious life developed, the monarchy was established, and so when you have kings, you think, okay, now we have, you know, this authority, this authority that can rule God's people. But interestingly, the king's rule was established by and subject to the word of God. So I want to read to you um, in Deuteronomy 17. This is telling us about the, the rule of the king of Israel. And it says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from this commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." So the, the king, right, the king over the nation of Israel, what's on his job description? Well, first, it's to write down a copy of the law of God, two, keep it with you at all times, and three, read and obey it every day. That's the king's job description, because the king is not the supreme authority. The word of God is the supreme authority, and the king is subject to it, and his authority does not extend beyond the, the boundaries that God has established in his word. So again, the highest authority of every man and woman is the Word of God, and every human authority is subject to the Word of God. If you don't know, we have a, you know, a theological uh, statement. So I want to read to you a section from our statement of faith. You can go to our website and download it if you want to. It would actually be really edifying, I think, for you to read it. Um, But this is from our theological vision and mission statement. Let me just read to you. It should be on the screen here as well. And this is what it says about the Bible. God is a speaking God, who by His Spirit has graciously disclosed Himself in human words. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, which are both record and means of His saving work in the world. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired Word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of His will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. 
We confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively. But we affirm that enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can know God's revealed truth truly. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction and all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command and all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge and all that it promises. As God's people hear, believe, and do the word, they are equipped as disciples of Christ and witnesses to the gospel. Now, this is in our statement of faith as Christ the King Church. God is not silent. God is not mute. Our God is a God who speaks. Our God is a God who says things because he rules, he creates with his words, and he rules all of our lives he rules sovereignly because he's a God who is, he has sovereign power and he rules through his word. He tells us what he's doing. So in the Old Testament, that reveals God's redemptive purpose and it anticipated and predicted the arrival of Jesus. And the Old Testament was the Bible that Jesus had, right? That was the Bible that, that Jesus read. And Jesus, in the New Testament, he always affirmed the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. He'd often say things, you know, when he's in a sparring with the Pharisees or something. He'd always say things like, have you not read? Like, don't you know what, what, uh, what the book says because we're people of the book? In fact, in 19 different places in the uh, Old Testament scriptures, it says um, Jesus refers to the Old Testament scriptures in 19 times by the phrase, it is written. In fact, in the whole, uh, whole Bible, the phrase, it is written, appears 80 times because the Bible is always referencing itself because it, it is this accumulation of God's self-disclosure. Whenever Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus did not refute him with miracles or mighty acts of power. Jesus refuted the devil with, it is written. He quoted Deuteronomy <laughs> back to the devil whenever he was sparring with the devil. And so the New Testament, it bears witness to how Jesus fulfilled all of God's redemptive purposes that were initially promised in the Old Testament. The New Testament, including the Gospel of Luke, which we're beginning today, it is the written record of Jesus Christ. It is an eyewitness testimony to the person and the work of Jesus. And so together, the Bible, the 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament, utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings... So God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. The Bible contains everything we need for salvation and for the Christian life. And so Luke begins his gospel by telling us who he's writing about, why he wrote it, how he went about writing it. And this can give us insight into the way God went about revealing himself to us through his word. So Luke begins his story by assuring the reader, these aren't made up stories. This is eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate Word of God. So that's all introduction. Today I want to give you three reasons, and not the only three, but we'll say the top three reasons why we're studying the book of Luke. Why we're studying the book of Luke. So let's dig in by reading this introductory section, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is God's word. First reason, this story is about Jesus. That's the first reason. That's the number one reason. This story is about Jesus. Luke tells us that he's compiled a narrative, meaning that what he's telling us is in, is in a, a form of a story. He says it's a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, meaning that among us, Jesus appeared on the scene and he did things. And this is the story of Jesus. So this is the story of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and why that matters for us because Jesus did many, many things. In fact, the Gospel of John, at the end of his Gospel, this is what he says about Jesus. John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I love that. That's how he finishes his book. He's like, well, this is just the, the cliff notes, or as you kids say, spark notes nowadays. In my day, they were cliff notes. But you say, like, hey, this is just a, a thin slice of what Jesus actually did. Now, I don't want to ruin the ending for you, but the main character does die in this story. So if you're not familiar with the gospel, the main character dies, but don't worry, he rises again from the dead, and that's why we're all Christians and we believe this, is that Jesus die, uh, died and rose again. And after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to a couple of his disciples, and they didn't recognize him. And so Jesus is walking along, and he starts this conversation with them, and they don't know who he is. And so Jesus strikes up a conversation. He says, hey, fellas, uh, anything interesting been going on the last week or two? And these guys are like, oh, man, you don't know? Well, let's tell you. And they go on to tell Jesus the story of Jesus, which had to have been kind of ironic for him to listen to. And they didn't realize that they were talking to the risen Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says something to them that certainly they wouldn't have seen coming. Now, this is what Jesus said during this conversation. Luke 24, verse 25, he said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, which is like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, beginning with Moses all the way back, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. So not only is Luke's story a story about Jesus, Luke's story about Jesus tells us that the whole Bible is about Jesus. This is a, this is a, wonderful, a wonderful text, a wonderful scripture. Because it tells us the whole Bible is the story of Jesus and the gospel of Luke is just a part of that story. But the story of Jesus begins in Genesis 1-1, whenever God created the world. In fact, all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all say the same thing. Jesus Christ is God who took on human flesh and entered into humanity to save us from our sin. And so the apostle John, at the beginning of his gospel, he approaches the same subject in a little bit different way. He starts out describing Jesus before the incarnation. He's talking about Jesus as he pre-existed before he took on human flesh. So we already read this in our liturgy, but listen to this. 
John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Echoes of Genesis there. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word is disclosure, right? It's speech. It's communication. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's referring to Jesus Christ here. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So that's how John begins his story. He's telling us this Jesus that we're talking about, that lived and walked among us, this Jesus existed before the foundation of the world, and he is the very essence of God himself. So Jesus is God. Jesus is our creator who became our savior. And so Jesus is not merely a man of historical importance. Jesus is the God of all history. And so the story of Jesus is the story of God himself because Jesus is God. Jesus is one with the Father. He was anticipated in the Old Testament and he was fulfilled in the New Testament. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is the beginning and the end. And the story of Luke is simply the earthly part of his story. So as we go through this story of Jesus, remember this. Every word, every action, every encounter, every miracle, all of these stories are stories about God who stepped into humanity to become one of us to rescue us from our sin. The story is about Jesus. The second reason. This story is true and trustworthy. The story is true and trustworthy. There are several things in Luke 1, 1 through 4, that indicate the accuracy and truthfulness of Luke's account. He says... He set out to write an orderly account. Like Ben said, it's, this, it's, it's orderly, it's linear. It's like he's, he's, he's laying it out for us in a particular way. So he compiled his notes and arranged his material to provide for us an orderly account. Secondly, he said that he followed all things closely for some time past. Meaning that he's not just the guy who happened to write things down uh, because... He's got a knack for words. But rather, he's telling us, it's like he's paid very close attention. He's an investigator. He is very, very attentive to detail. So Luke was a careful observer and historian. So he was a physician by trade. And that would, of course, require careful attention to detail and, and to, uh, to, be able to, do, uh, to be able to do his work. But then Luke was also a student of Jesus student of Jesus' life. And so he spent a long time following these things. So he would have interviewed people. He would have investigated the historical details. And third, he said that he was, uh, that he's writing down eyewitness accounts. Now, this is really important because eyewitness accounts, that was the standard for verification in the ancient world. And going all the way back to the time of Israel, two or three eyewitnesses, that was, that was considered... The, what we would consider equivalent to video. I mean, it's like that if two or three people see something and give testimony to it, then that makes something rock solid truth. That's, that's as good as you're going to get, other, you know, to, to, 
to provide validity that something took place. So he's saying like this is as the highest standard of verification that would have been accepted is that this is based on eyewitness testimony. Now, if you were to read 1 Corinthians 15, you would see it's not just two or three eyewitnesses. I mean, just in the Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we have four eyewitnesses. But then the Apostle Paul references hundreds of eyewitnesses who would testify, yeah, this stuff happened, this is real. And of course, you know, the same is true today. We rely on eyewitness testimony to establish the fact of something. I mean, like, we have deep fakes now, so not even video can be relied upon. So it's like eyewitness testimony is really important because it was somebody who was there, somebody who saw, who heard, who experienced, and can give an account saying, I was there and I saw and witnessed this thing. So Luke's gospel is based on firsthand eyewitness testimony from people who were there in the beginning with Jesus. You're not going to get any more reliable data than that. That is rock-solid data. Now, other New Testament authors, they echo some of these same thoughts. I'll, this one, uh, I'll read to you from 2 Peter. But, they, but the point that they're making is that these aren't made-up stories, right? These are, this is eyewitness testimony. So listen to what 2 Peter said. Of course, Peter was one of the 12. Peter uh, wrote this epistle, and he's speaking of his own experience. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father. Now, if you know the story, he's referring to the transfiguration here. Meaning Jesus was transfigured. Jesus was glorified to a degree in the presence of Peter, James, and John. So they were eyewitnesses not only of Jesus' life, but they were there whenever he was, he was transformed physically. And, and, and the glory of God was, was shining on him in this moment of transfiguration. So for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased... We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, listen to this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what this means is that what we have contained in the Bible is not just guys pontificating, that's ah, what I think God is like. Ah, you know, I think God is love. That would be nice. Let's throw that in there. Yeah, but God's justice too. All right, justice, let's throw that in there. We'll pretty it up, write some things, make a few stories up, and uh, people believe this stuff. I mean, like, there are people that actually think that the Bible came together that way, which is beyond foolish. But it's, Peter was saying, it's like, we were eyewitnesses. This is, this is like in a court of law, we would testify to this. And in fact, we'll talk about this in a moment. They gave their lives bearing witness that this is what happened. So these words of Scripture are God's words. This is how God has chosen to make himself known to us. And they don't come about because they decide to write something down. We have lots of, you know, if you go to a Christian bookstore, 
or, or, or just say you just go to a bookstore and you've got your inspirational section, meaning like this is like uh, Christian-y stuff, you know, stuff that's kind of inspirational. I mean, you'll read it and you'll kind of feel good and religious while you read it. That's not what inspired means. Inspired means God breathed it out and God carried along men as they were writing. And so it is a work of God and it is a work of man and God speaking through the human authors exactly what it is that he wanted to reveal to us. So what do we do with that? Well, have you ever read something in the Bible that rubs you the wrong way? Anybody? <laughs> Probably if you've read, you know, a page or two of the Bible, um, you'll find things that rub you the wrong way. You'll find things, I'm like, I don't like that. Uh, I, call me a sinner? Come on, good, sweet me, call me a sinner? Rebellious, wicked, what do you mean? I mean, there, there's lots of things that we would encounter in the Bible that could rub us the wrong way. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with people about, you know, Christianity, sharing my faith with people. And sometimes people will say things like, you know, I, I just can't believe in a God that would, and then fill in the blank. Meaning that their own subjective opinion about who God should be gets to determine whether or not they'll believe in the God who actually is. So anybody that starts a sentence with, I just can't believe in a God who, disregard whatever comes next. Because it's based on their own opinion. If God is truly God, and if every man and woman is truly sinful, that means our minds are corrupt, our minds are, 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 somewhat, are affected by the fall. And if God's word is eternally true, then shouldn't we expect the Bible to challenge us? Shouldn't we expect to encounter things that are difficult? Shouldn't we expect the Bible to correct us, contradict us, even rebuke us? Of course we should expect that. Now, most humans that I've met, they think they're right most of the time. And so that means that we've got all these different opinions about all these different things. And so how do we determine what is actually true? Well, if God is real and if God has spoken and if God has revealed himself in his word, then that is our standard. That is, that is how we determine. That is how, that is how we uh, understand what is actually true. So it, it, it takes some humility to submit to God's word when the Bible says something that you don't like. And so whenever, the Bible, whenever you are reading through the Bible or you encounter a text or something that says something that you don't like, that's challenging, that you disagree with, pay extra t close attention to that because that is God correcting you. And the fact that you don't like it means that there is some resistance Pay attention to that. Now, it could be that you're misunderstanding, misinterpreting the Bible. I mean, that's a whole other discipline that we won't talk about today. But there is a proper way to interpret the Bible. But just to dismiss it because you don't like it, that's, that's error. We don't do that. So if there's something that's like, gosh, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like the way that sounds. That rubs me the wrong way. That can't be true. Then that's an area of unbelief. Pay attention to those areas. And take them to God. I'm like, God, give me the faith to believe or give me the mind to understand. But that those are areas that, that we need to listen more carefully. The Bible isn't wrong because the Bible is never wrong because the Bible is the word of God and God is never wrong. So if you, if you, if you have a problem, then the error is somewhere in us. And, I, and I'm like this too. We're all like this. 
we run across a verse, we read a story, I'm like, gosh, I don't like that. <laughs> you know? I don't like the way that sounds, I don't like the way that makes me feel, and so we just want to disregard it. I mean, that's a temptation. That's a, very, that's a very normal human temptation. But I'm saying, like, if God's word is authoritative, we cannot just succumb to that temptation and say, like, well, there must be an error in the Bible. Or, you know, well, maybe the Apostle Paul and Jesus, uh, they have different theology or something like that. Well, listen, that's never the case. The Bible is perfectly consistent from end to end. The problem is in us and our ability to interpret, or it could be just in our own hard-heartedness and unwillingness to submit to the Word of God. Scripture is the plumb line. It is the rule to measure all other rules. It is the standard to judge every standard. So we don't come to Scripture looking for verses to justify our own thoughts. Rather, we come to Scripture to learn how to think. We come to Scripture to be taught, to be instructed. And I'll just say this incidentally. Um, it seems like in every generation there is some significant uh, pushback that arises. You know, maybe uh, every 20, 30 years, different denominations, different times. Throughout, throughout the last 500 years or so especially, we see these, these issues come up where the authority of God or the authority of Scripture is questioned. And, that's, and it, comes, it can come up suddenly. And I see this one coming in, in our time, in our generation, in the next 10 or 20 years, there will be significant uh, questions and significant movements, and it's already underway, where people want to question the Word of God. And, and every time, whatever objections are raised, they're always answered if we're patient. There are ways that, there, there are things that we, can, um, that we can learn and grow to understand how do we interpret and apply the Bible to our lives. But there's always going to be some controversy. And so I think in our generation, we should just be prepared to stand firm on the Word of God. Listen to how the Scripture describes itself. Some of these we've already read in our liturgy, but it would be good to hear them again. 2 Timothy 3, 7, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out, that's where we get the word inspiration. So expire means to breathe, inspire, breathe in. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. And it's profitable. Well, profitable for what? Well, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, all of those things. To what end? Well, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This, this text is wonderful because it, it, it tells us the, how effective the Word of God is. A lot of times we, we come to the Bible and we think, I'm going to go and read the Bible. And a lot of times it is the Bible that reads us. Because the Bible exposes us, and it, 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 it opens us up, and it, and it reveals things. I mean, just, there, there, there are always things that I'm, that I'm seeing in the Word of God where scriptures that I might have read one way initially, and I'm seeing new layers, and the new layers lay me bare, and I just I realize my own hard-heartedness, my own areas where I need to repent. I'm seeing these things all the time, because that's what the Word of God is. The Word of God is a sword. It cuts and it lays us open, it cuts us open, and it helps reveal and expose who we are, shows us new ways that we need to rely on God and trust God more fully. 
1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass, and all its, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. God's word is eternally true. Third reason. This story can change your life. This story can change your life. A very common mistake is to assume that the gospel writers approach their subject like journalists. You know, like this is like a New York Times investigative journalist, you know, an expose, Jesus Christ, Son of God, or whatever, as though that that's, that's the way that they're approaching the subject. And of course, you, you'll hear, this is, I, don't, I don't know how much this is said nowadays, but at least it used to be that journalists would claim to be reporting the facts objectively. Unbiased reporting. I don't know if they even claim that anymore because I think we all just kind of give up. Yeah, we all know you're biased, so just, just tell us you're biased. And I think that's more the case now. But there, there was a time whenever that was, uh, that was considered to be, you know, the gold standard of reporting is unbiased, objective, you know, looking at a situation objectively. And there's value in trying to approach a subject that way. And the thing is, like, everybody has their biases. Everybody comes to a, situ- comes to a story or whatever they're writing. Everybody comes with a bias. And those biases do influence the way facts are reported. And because of that, the, the gospel writers don't hide their bias. Bias doesn't mean compromised or untrue. Bias just means that they do have a purpose. They do have something that they're trying to accomplish, and they state openly what their, what their purpose is. And Luke tells us here in, in, uh, at the beginning of his gospel, he tells us what his, what his purpose is. His purpose is to promote faith in Jesus Christ. That's why he wrote it. So verse 4, Luke states directly, he's writing these things that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So Theophilus had learned things. He had been taught things. And Luke was writing to help him be more certain. Presumably, maybe he had, he had read, uh, you know, he'd read stories or he had heard, uh, heard stories about Jesus. And you know, maybe he's like, well, I, I wonder how much of this is, is real, how much of this is true. And so Luke is like, I tell you what, I'm going to write it all out in an orderly account so that way you can know that of the things that I've written in this book, every word of it has been carefully researched, investigated, and I'm laying it out in an orderly way so that you can be certain, so that you can have confidence in the things that you've been taught. Why? Because he wants to build him up in the faith. He's wanting to promote the faith. So Luke was a Christian Luke's life was changed by life uh, encounter with Jesus Christ. And Luke wants everybody to know and to believe in Jesus. That's his purpose. He doesn't hide it. That's why the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are often called the evangelists because they're evangelizing. They wrote these stories down because they want people to know the truth of Jesus. They want other people to experience the sort of life-changing encounter with Christ that they've experienced. So the gospels are all evangelistic. Luke's sources Uh, would have been Christian. He said in verse 2, his sources are those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So it's not just Frank who's uh, just happened to be wandering, you know, through the desert that day and saw Jesus do a miracle. You know what? Frank doesn't have any skin in the game. Luke wants to talk to people who who are committed, people that that are true believers and so his sources are people that are not only eyewitnesses, but also people that are committed, they're ministers of the word. 
And so all four of the Gospels were written to promote the Christian faith, and that's not a problem. That's not a bad thing, because they're not investigative journalists who are un, unbiased reporting. No, they, they're, they're writing as people who believe and who care about the subject matter. And so they're writing to promote the faith so people can know Jesus, believe in Him, and be built up in their faith. So no, Luke was not this objective reporter. Just giving the facts, Luke was a Christian historian whose own life was changed by Jesus, and that's his own motivation. That's his own, that, that's, uh, that, that has changed him such that he wants to tell others about Jesus. So he had skin in the game himself. He wrote his story so people far and wide can have their lives changed by Jesus just as his was changed. Now, verse 3, uh, he, he mentions the recipient, Theophilus. Who's this guy? Well, we don't know who he was. Um, perhaps some have speculated that he was a benefactor, some wealthy guy that uh, funded Luke while he was traveling and researching and writing it out. And so Theophilus, you know, uh, funded it. Maybe. Um, we don't know. But the name itself is interesting because the name Theophilus, it's a compound word that means friend of God or lover of God. So Theo is Greek, or in the Greek, theu, theos is refer, refers to God, and phileo refers to friend or um, to love, something like that. So it's possible that Theophilus is, is a generic word that uh, is a poetic way of referring to all Christians, which would be us, the church. And I like that view. I don't know. Uh, but it, it, either way, the, 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 uh, the effect is the same. And that it is written not merely for Theophilus, but it is here in the Word of God for our benefit. And so this book, God intended it. Regardless of Luke's initial reason, God's intent in this book is to establish us in the faith and build us up in the faith. And that's why he's been doing this. Or that's why he wrote this. And, and that's exactly what God has been doing through this book for 2,000 years. He's been establishing people in the faith, building them up in the faith, giving people a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ through the stories of this book. Incidentally, there are stories in the Gospel of Luke that you're not going to find in any of the other Gospels. And some of our most cherished and beloved stories of Jesus are only in the Gospel of Luke. The Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, there are a handful of others. These are only in the Gospel of Luke. And these stories have enriched us. And How much have we gained and benefited? We did a whole sermon series on the Prodigal Son last year. So it's been accomplishing Luke's purpose for 2,000 years. A few years ago, um, Laura and I, we visited the Creation Museum. And uh, there's one, one quote that had this, uh, one exhibit had a quote written on it. And it was, uh, I, I just loved it. So I wrote it down. This quote said, the scriptures have been the most burned, banned, destroyed, and suppressed literary work ever in history. Yet it remains the most copied, most printed, most known, and most read bestseller. So whenever I say that the eyewitnesses had their lives changed by the gospel, Luke's life, Theophilus's life, our lives, when I say that, that their lives were changed by this story, history does bear this out. Now, according to church tradition, um, this is tradition, this is not necessarily historical records, but according to the tradition of the church, all of the original apostles were so radically changed by the gospel, their encounter with Jesus, that they died for their eyewitness testimony to him. They refused to recant. They, they gave their life for it. Everybody except for the apostle John. 
But church tradition claims that all the other apostles laid down their lives for the gospel. And then after that, the apostle Paul, he was martyred under Nero. After him, Ignatius from church history, he was most likely martyred in the early 2nd century. Polycarp was martyred around 156. Justin Martyr, I wonder how he got his, he got his name. <laughs> he got his name because he was killed by the Romans in the mid-2nd century. And throughout church history, God has been changing people's lives because they encountered Jesus. Now, how did they encounter Jesus? Jesus did not appear to them in the flesh because Jesus has ascended and he's with the Father now. But they encountered Jesus through his word. And the word is applied to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is how the church grows. It is in the power of the Spirit now that has been poured out. And the Spirit works through the Word of God, the preached Word of God. That's why we, we spend 40, 45 minutes doing this every Sunday. It's because we value the Word of God. And the Word of God is, is a powerful and effective and it's useful and it changes lives. And we know Jesus. We encounter Jesus. Our lives are changed. We, we, we have this deep and enriched faith because of the Word of God, where God has spoken to us. Throughout church history, people's lives have been changed because of this encounter. Boniface, John Hus, Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, all gave their lives because they had a radical life change in their encounter with Jesus. So the moral of the story is you have an encounter with Jesus, what's likely to... No, I'm kidding, that's not... But that's, that's the sort of radical encounter that we're talking about. Romans 10 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So here's a question. Is that the kind of faith that you desire? Is that the kind of faith that you want? Do you want a faith that has that kind of certainty, that kind of life change, that kind of power? People don't lay down their lives for things they don't believe in, right? People lay down their lives for something when they are certain of it, when it's a matter of conviction for them. So if you want this kind of faith, the kind of faith that moves mountains, the kind of faith that gives you certainty and conviction, you will get that sort of certainty and confidence in your faith through the Word of God. And that's the thing, that, that's, that's where we can be confident. It's not a personality. It is a conviction born out of a, a, a commitment to the Word, born of Scripture. It was this commitment to the Word of God that turned Martin Luther, a nerdy German monk, into a titan of the Christian faith. It was all the Scriptures. It was the Word of God. It was the Word of God that converted Augustine out of his utterly hedonistic lifestyle because he encountered God in the book of Romans and his life was changed. That's why Luke wrote it, Theophilus. Maybe that's us. Be cool if it is. So again, is that the kind of faith that you want? You want a kind of life-changing faith, a faith that moves mountains? Do you want a life-changing encounter with Jesus? The way to do that is at least through his word. It's not, it's not the only way, but there is no life-changing encounter with Jesus apart from his word. That is how God has seen fit to reveal Jesus to us, is through his word. And you can read it, you can listen to it, meditate on it, memorize it. Just to make a mental note here, our staff is working on um, another Bible reading plan for next year that will include prayer also, um, like daily, uh, daily prayers, scripture readings that will just kind of, we'll do something together, and it'll be not, not the whole Bible most likely, maybe a New Testament. But that'll be something that just, 
If you're thinking about next year, you know, maybe a plan on doing that with us. Well, more to come on that. But the point is that God's word can change your life and give you certainty. And that's my prayer for all of us as we study the gospel of Luke. So let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to us that you have, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you are not silent, and that we're not left to wonder about God, but that we can know Christ and we can be turned inside out by the power of your word. And so, Lord, however long it takes us to get through Luke, I pray, Lord, that every word will uh, build us up and give us certainty and change us and conform us, make us more and more like Christ. Lord, I pray for us uh, to have understanding into your word. Lord, there are a lot of things that are difficult for us to understand because of our sin and hardness of heart and just lack of knowledge and wisdom. I pray, Lord God, that you will help us as a church, protect us from error and help us to, to know you more fully, not merely for the sake of just being theologically correct, but for the sake of, of the change that comes about through knowing you and encountering you in that way. Father, thank you for uh, the table where we eat and drink the word, the, the, the man of Christ, Jesus, that gave his life for us. We pray, God, um, that you will nourish us through the table. And thank you for baptism and the celebration of the, this visualization of the gospel. And so build us up in our faith. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.